always gets so hard at the end because there's so many demands on, especially mothers with kids in school. There's just busier and busier, and so thank you for being here today. Um, but I, so I wanted to, I thought, well, I want to give you some encouragement for being here. And so um, this is just a little encouragement. I can't think of two more beautiful subjects to end our time with than the subject of prayer and the subject of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's how we're going to end. Darwin will be here next week to teach on the new heavens and the new earth. And so this morning we're going to talk about prayer. So um, I just I think that as we begin to think about those those two studies that Isaiah leaves us with is that they are studies in hope and blessing. And their prayer for prayer is for our faithful living now as we wait for the Lord to come again and the, the new heavens and the new earth is for our future eternal living with God forever and ever. In fact, the new heavens and the new earth is truly the final fulfillment of the answer to all of our prayers and the answer to all of God's promises. And someday when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, we will know everything about the journey we walked here. And we'll, we'll see it. And everything will make sense. Everything in our life will make sense. Everything will be worthy of worship. As Tim Keller says, all of our sad things will come untrue. But for now, we walk in the shadow lands. And so prayer becomes our cry for God to lead us through this dry and barren land. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So... Um, Appropriately, let me begin with prayer. And I want to use a passage from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33, verses 2 and 3. This, is a, this prayer is uh, during a time of great despair for the people of God. It is during the siege that the Babylonians are uh, ready to take Jerusalem. That is before captivity. And so Isaiah... Um, gives to them a word from the Lord, and this is what it says. Thus says the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord who formed, formed it to establish it, Yahweh is his name. And then the Lord says, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Now when you hear that, that promise is given to them just before they go into captivity. What God is doing is he is giving them the big hope, the eternal hope that they need to have. And so when God says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great things, that's essentially the definition of what prayer is. Prayer is calling on the creator, the covenant-keeping God, and telling him of your desperate need of him, and he promises to answer us. But beyond that, he promises to enlarge our hope beyond anything we can imagine. So let me pray for us, and then we'll talk about our lesson. Father, uh, how we need that hope to know that we are to call on you, and that you are, are our, our great hope and our great truth and our great purpose. And Lord, we just need you because we live in a broken world. And Lord, we are broken people still. 
It will not always be so, but it is so now. So we ask you that you would be with us today, that you would make us women of prayer. Oh, Lord, how we pray that. We pray that you will come and and be present and, and just stir our hearts that we would see the importance of prayer. And we come to you now, Jesus, because you have won the victory. And because you have given us a promise and you have told us that we can come boldly into your throne room. And so we come there today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so before we look at our passage for today, we've got to put it in context. And so we're going to go back and, and just do a brief summary of some of the things from last week that talked about prayer. And it'll set the stage for our discussion today. So the first thing we're going to to remember from last week's lesson is that in, it comes from chapter 62 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 3. And here we have the anointed one praying. And what is he praying? Okay, this is what it says. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be still until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. That's Jesus praying. That is Jesus dedicating himself to pray until the fullness of salvation for his people become a reality. Jesus is praying that prayer now until the fullness of time. Note that it says that it's talking about Zion, but in its prophetic reach, it is talking about all of God's people. It is talking about the new Jerusalem that God is forming. It is a prayer that Jesus prays, and it's also a prayer that calls him to action. He says, I will not be still. That means I will not sit quietly. I will be active in bringing this prayer about. I will take my whole self and be involved in bringing it about. It is Jesus is saying, I will pray for my people, and I will act on those prayers to bring them about. Remember last year when we studied Hebrews and we studied this passage. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a glorious prayer. That's an unimaginable prayer of hope. And this is about hope in the biblical sense. This is about certainty. That is what hope means in the biblical sense. And Jesus is praying that prayer at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is there on the throne beside the Father with the marks of Calvary in his hands. And he is, he is waiting. He is just waiting. You see, he has already done part of the work that he's been praying for. But it's not finished yet. And he will continue to pray until all of the work is done, until all of God's people have come to faith, until every person upon whom God set his love before the foundation of the world, he will continue praying until they all have come. As one commentator comes, writes, he says, until the elect have received their resurrected body, he will continue 
to pray that prayer. And there is a day, there is a day that when that prayer will no longer be needed because it will all be fulfilled, but that is not yet. And so this day he continues to pray. Now, again, from last week's lesson, there were these verses in in, uh, the same chapter in verses 6 through 9, and they're surprising. It's a surprising addition. It's unexpected because the Lord calls us to participate in that same urgent prayer. He is setting watchmen, he says, on the walls. Now, he's talking about the prophets at that time, probably, the watchman, but my friends, that call continues to go out to his people today. We are a kingdom of priests. We are to be praying this same prayer for God's people today and until the time that every person is brought in. And the Lord plan, plan is for us, for us to be unceasing intercessors until the fullness of all things. And his plan is for his people to watch with constant alertness and to pray unceasingly And we, too, are to act on those prayers in faithfulness. But there is more in this passage, astonishingly, that we are called to do. And that is that we are called to pray God's promises to him and give him no rest until his faithful church rises up to be a glory on the earth. As one commentator writes, until his church brings astonishment to the world. Jesus wants us to have the same zeal for his church as he does. And he wants us to pray for that consummation to come quickly. In other words, we are to give him no rest until all of his promises are fulfilled. Now, finally, the last thing that we remember as we enter into our passage today is that in the first seven verses of chapter 63, that we have to walk through that chapter in order to get to where we are today. And in that passage, we are to see clearly, as Christina told us beautifully last week, that judgment is a reality. And it's going to be a horrific moment for those outside of Jesus Christ. The passage is visual, and it's bloody, and it says vengeance was in the heart of the Lord. And he brought this this vengeance by himself. His own arm accomplished it. But, my friends, this, too, is a promise of God. Evil and sin will be no more. The raging of nations will be no more. And God himself will be with us as our God, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. There is beautiful hope in this passage, but there's great warning in this passage. And I hope that as we hear this passage, there will fall upon us the urgency of the gospel going forth. Before that great and horrible day, we are to be praying for and taking the glorious gospel to all the nations. That's part of praying this kingdom prayer. And we are to do that through how we support our missionaries in this church, how we support them. And we are to do that through our own work of spreading the gospel with all that we need. And I don't know about you, but I don't take that seriously enough. So let us be praying that we would be those kinds of people. So our question today is, how are we doing in praying these kingdom prayers? And how are we doing on living out of those kingdom prayers? 
Are we faithfully participating in what Jesus wants us to be doing? And part of our answer to that must also involve this perplexing question. Why is prayer not our greatest desire? Why is prayer, in fact, often our last resort? So we're going to try to answer those today. So let me give this disclaimer as we jump in. In no way am I the best person to be standing up here to teach on this glorious subject. I'm just, I have been praying that I would be an instrument in the hand of, oh, here I go, in the hand of the Lord. And um, because every person here is called to be prayers like this. And everyone in the room could stand up and tell us of their journey in prayer, of their successes and their failures. But I'm going to try to do my best to talk to you about this because we are traveling this destination before the throne of God. It's important. It's serious. Prayer is a massive call, and it's beautiful, and it's essential. And it, there is no pattern that you have to pray. I think that's what gets us so confused sometimes. You don't have to pray. It's a relationship. So we're going to talk about those things. But we are to keep in mind that we are praying as watchmen for our world, our city, our church, our families, our friends, and most especially over these fallen hearts that we still live with. So as we as we look at our passage for today, we're just going to look at verse 7, really, for our, for our passage today, because we're going to talk about prayer in a wider venue. But I do want us to begin there. And I don't, I, I, my, my purpose here is I'm going to share some of the things that I've learned in prayer is, is not to say, pray like this. That's not what I'm doing. What I want to do is to be an encourager to call you to the freedom and the joy and the hope that prayer is and the promise that prayer is. I want to encourage you that your prayers are greatly welcomed in the throne room of God. As one author writes from time immemorial, prayer has been spoken of as the breath of the soul. Prayer is not meant to be wrote. It's supposed to be alive to God in his greatness and his glory. How amazing that God wants our prayers. And so prayer is also to be honest about our hearts and longingly seeking help in all of our various situations. Every person here is in need. Every person has a different sorrow or a different sin. But God says, bring them to me. Every sin, every sorrow, the lovelessness in your heart, the selfishness in your heart. Are caring, are we caring well for people? Our loneliness, in our questioning and confusion, all of it, all of it, God says, bring it to me. Remember, God is not interested in soaring words. Scripture tells us that he knows our prayers before ever we speak a word. It's not that, that we, have to, we have to make these beautiful prayers and they have to sound just amazing. That's not right. God just, he wants us to come. He wants us to say we need you. His desire is that we come to him for help. 
Now, we've all had these wonderful moments. We've all had them where, where they're, we're praying and we're just, it is so, we just can't, don't want to stop. It's just beautiful that our prayers are, we are praising God and it's just a beautiful thing. I love that. That's a wonderful thing. But be not fooled because it is also a beautiful thing when tears fall helplessly from your eyes and you bow before him and you have no words. Because that too is a soaring prayer into the heart of God. The beginning of our passage helps us with how we can best begin our prayers, I think. Not that, not that it gives us exactly, but it gives us parameters that are very helpful, I think. I think most prayers are best if they begin here, because here's what it says. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. We use that as a pattern. We come to this passage not as the people who first heard this from Isaiah. We don't come. We're not in that situation. We are a people also who are not in the situation that the Lord's praying for. We're not there yet. No, we're living in the already and not yet time, aren't we? We live in the midst of a broken world, and my goodness, it seems to be shattering around us. And yet we are a people who live after the coming of Jesus. Oh, just think how much greater our prayers can be because of what we know. More than the people of Isaiah. Much more. We have this greater hope before us. My friends, he has answered the prayer. The heavens were rent, And he has come down. We have that before us. He has fulfilled that part of his promise. And we pray well if we keep this general structure before us in prayer because it begins where we most often should begin. And that is with God. The passage calls us to recount, to actually think of all the things we can think of about our covenant God that are worthy of praise. And in so doing, we will begin to worship and praise and bow before him. The purpose of beginning here is to place us in humble reliance upon him and to be in awe before him and bow before him in the certain hope that all of his promises are made for us and will someday come true. We also are to be a people who need to confess our sins. We are a people who know the cost of our sins. Because there was a body that hung on a tree, and it had been broken and beaten and spit upon. And he hung there, and he suffered the wrath of God for our sins. We know that. How can we not come to him with our sins and confess our sorrow for them? So in our prayers, I think we will often find ourselves, as we talk about the greatness of God and the greatness of his son, that we'll find ourselves moving back and forth between adoration and sorrow and repentance and hope, and it will all begin to come together. That's why I'm I'm so against these patterns, because I think we are just to pour our hearts out before God. 
we also can bring to him his attributes. Because if you'll notice that that in verse 7, the recounting of God's covenant love includes remembering his goodness, his compassion, and the abundance of his steadfast love. In other words, Isaiah is, is remembering and praising God for being all those things to his people. I don't know about you. I don't know how you pray. I'm not telling you how to pray. But I begin my prayers most often with my Bible open. Sometimes they're open to the Psalms. Right now I'm praying through the Psalms. Sometimes they're open to Paul's prayers in Ephesians. Sometimes to prayers in Acts. Sometimes to the Beatitudes. Sometimes to Romans. Sometimes to Revelation. It's just that those things that that praying God's word just helps me in my praying. Then it's not so much, I'm not so much focused on where I am right now and what I need and all of those things. My vision becomes bigger. Sometimes I focus on an attribute of God. I, I find there that I can find in reading scripture and I focus on that. Sometimes I, I have a, a book on uh, the holiness of God and it's by Tozer and there there are, are passages written on all kinds of, of the attributes of God. Sometimes I'll read those and pray through those as, as Tozer opens up all the glories of each attribute. For example, faithfulness. That is worthy of praise. You can come to that in Lamentations 3 and read there about what it says about how great is God's faithfulness. And what that means to our church, what that means in my heart. I can cry out for for God's faithfulness in his call to covenant children to come to him. Oh, Lord, they've come before you. And I can pray God's faithfulness on those children. I can cry for his faithfulness to the brokenhearted, that he sees them and he knows them. I might pray in some way to that I would reflect something of God's faithfulness in my own life, that I would begin to reflect who he is in my relationships. I might thank God for and worship him for his omniscience and worship him that he knows all things. He knows my rising up and my sitting down, and he knows it all before it ever happens. He knows my sinful heart. He loves me still. I can thank him for those things. He knows my sorrows and my joys, and he is moving all of those things to bring me safely home. I can pray for my friends that are struggling, that he knows everything about their sorrows and their fears, their sadnesses. He knows exactly where to speak peace into their hearts. He knows exactly what they need. I don't have to try to figure it out. I can just take them and lay them before him, that he would meet them in their place of greatest need. I guess the Psalms are probably my go-to place to help me pray. I often use the Psalms to worship, to recount all of God's goodness in the past. They remind me of his goodness to his people now. The Psalms remind me, of course. We come across them and we're reading and they remind me what a sinner I am. And they remind me how much I need his grace. I come across and I find that the Lord is my shepherd. And he leads me beside the still waters. But that same psalm tells me that, yea, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, he's going to be with me in that also. The psalms tell me 
that the reality of life is in him. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that my heart desires beside you. The Psalms help me to pray those things. One author writes this about the Psalms. He says, they were not written for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. I love that. I may also go to a passage of scripture, one that I, I love and is, is a beautiful one to go to, is Zephaniah. <laughs> Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. You know this one probably. In this passage, there is the hope of the reversal reversal of judgment. There is the, it talks about the conversion of Israel and the nations that, that they are turning because God is calling them to himself. And there you find, here's what it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with singing. This is This is an amazing passage to pray that God would do that now in our city, in our church, in our places, that that people would begin coming to him, that judgment would be reversed because of his grace. It is a beautiful thing to pray for hurting friends. One thing I have learned in prayer, at least for me, is that, that the more that 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 I am in scripture and feeding myself on beautiful things of God, the more, the more easily the prayer just flows from me. It just is true. Oh, Hallisby, who was a theologian who was born in 1879, he is known for his writings on prayer. And I read one of his books years and years and years ago. And it was one of the first prayer uh, books I ever read. And um, that some of the things he talked about has helped me. They were simple and deep, but simple. He says this. He says, helplessness and faith are the two prerequisites of prayer. He writes this. He says, first of all, You have to remember that the power behind any prayer, how we can pray, why we can pray, is because of the very love of God in Christ. We can pray because Jesus Christ came. We can pray and be answered because Jesus has opened the way into the throne room of God. And we are called to come boldly, and so we do. And so he writes, you can pray because of that. And you come into to him in helpless dependence with a humble and contrite heart because we can merit nothing before God. And so it is necessary to be reconciled to one's helplessness and let our holy God take care of us. That's what we're supposed to do. But faith is the second aspect of that attitude because it is the essence of prayer. Without faith, our helplessness would only be a vain cry in the dark. The essence of faith is to come to Jesus and tell him and plead with him our need and distress and then leave everything with him. I love that. He also wrote this. He says, (laughs) this is great. One way to grow in faith is to plead the promises of God in prayer, 
Show him his own handwriting. God is tender to his word. So, in closing, let me just say this. Prayer is where you go to find hope. You do not go to prayer with pretense. You are not to be dressed up when you go pray. One um, commentator says, go as you are in your dirtiest garments. Reveal your true heart, your deepest sin, your great and seemingly hopeless sorrow, your unloving heart toward your neighbor or a sister or a brother. Pray your worldliness, your longings. Pray for your children and your sorrow of, of not being a good mom. Pray those things. Pray that you have not shared the gospel enough with them. Pray whatever it is you need, tell him. Tell him that because he bids you come. He bids all come. He, Jesus says to us, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. And I will give you rest. And when you're there, just ask him to begin planning in your heart a joy of what he's doing and that he would begin showing you who he is making you to be. The final question is this. Why is prayer often our last result? I'm going to leave that for each one of you to answer yourself. Wrestle with on your own. If that is your struggle, and it's been all of our struggles at times, I encourage you to pray this simple prayer. It's from, I can't remember the man's name, but it was from a long time ago. Anyway, it is, Lord, teach me to pray. Pray yourself in me. So let me pray for us. Father, uh, you give us a gift and we put it away unopened. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would make us a praying people. Lord, this world needs our prayers. Lord, our families need our prayers. Our church needs our prayers. Lord, we want to be warriors in this fight against evil, in this fight to bring you back, Lord, that you would be coming soon. We want to pray that prayer. Lord, we want to be the crown of beauty in your hand. That's what we want to be. That's what you're praying. That's what we want to be as we work to become that, as we lay ourselves before you and ask you, oh, Lord, make us your people through and through. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.